That brings us to the second cycle. Chapter 3, verse 12. The Israelites again did evil in Yahweh's sight. Yahweh gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because they had done evil in Yahweh's sight. Now, Moab is right here. It's directly east of Judah and on the complete opposite side of the Dead Sea in the southern part. Moab, remember, is what the, came from Moab, the son of Lot, and one of his daughters in Genesis chapter 19. Moab is a relative of Abraham. And God promised to bless Moab because he was connected. But that doesn't mean that Moab surrendered themselves to God in the same way that Israel is currently not surrendering themselves to God. So Moab is a constant threat to Israel all throughout the book of Numbers and into Kings until the Assyrians come in and just wipe everybody out. So Moab is here. So now the enemy is closer. It started in Mesopotamia a long time, way away. Now it's right next door to them. And Eglon is the guy who is the king. So now this story gets a little bit longer. Why does it get longer? Because the oppression is a second cycle now. So God handed them over. That's important to understand. God handed them over. Eglon formed alliances with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And he came and defeated Israel, and they seized the city of date palm trees. And the Israelites were subject to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. So the Ammonites are up here, just slightly north of Moab. He makes an alliance with the Ammonites. Now the Ammonites come from Ammon, or Ben-Ami, who produced the Ammonites, who is the other son of Lot from the other daughter of Lot, if you remember that story. Then he makes an alliance with the Amalekites. The Amalekites are immediately south of Judah. And they're the ones who waylaid Israel when they came out of Egypt. And they weren't originally on the list for destruction. But because they attacked Israel when they were completely weak and vulnerable, God put them on the list. But they haven't been completely wiped out like they were supposed to. Now, Moab and Ammon are not allowed to be touched by Israel. Israel is not allowed to attack them or wipe them out because they're a part of Abraham's um, descent unless they attack first. If they attack first, Israel is allowed to defend themselves, drive them out, and that's it. They're not allowed to move into their nations and take land from them. And they're not allowed to, to be um, unprovoked and attack them. But the Amalekites, they're fair game. In fact, they were supposed to be wiped out a long time ago. And the Amalekites are going to just keep coming back and back because nobody really does what they're supposed to do with them. So we got three nations that completely surround Judah mostly, and they are making an alliance and oppressing Israel for 18 years. Notice that the oppression it more than doubles. The oppression more than doubles now. And because when God delivers you and you reject that deliverance and go back in again, then usually he allows you to go longer and longer and longer. When the Israelites cried out to help to Yahweh, he raised up a deliverer for them. This demonstrates the compassion of God. I mean, you and I, we'd be like, no, I'm done. I'm done. But God loves them and is so patient and persevering, or I really like the word long-suffering. That's, that's a way better word than perseverance, that he delivers them. 
His name was Ehud, son of Gur, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The Israelites sent him to King Eglon of Moab with their tribute payment. God lifts up Ehud. Ehud is literally called a deliverer as well. So we know that he's a Benjamite. Ehud is called a deliverer, which means he's actually a judge in the way that God views judges, which means he's going to be a godly judge, and he's a Benjamite. Now that's very important to understand, because our first introduction to Benjamin in this book is a very positive one. By the time we get to the end of Judges, oh, how the Benjamites have fallen. And we'll get to that much later. He's a Benjamite. Now, it says in your translations that he was left-handed. That's not a good translation. What it literally says is that he's bound in the right hand. This is the same phrase that is used of the 300 left-handed slingers from Benjamin that we're going to read about later at the end of the, the book. Back when I, the King James was the only one out there, they assumed that, well, if you're bound up in the right hand, maybe that meant that he was crippled in the right hand, or it was their way of saying he can't use it so that he must be left-handed. We now know that that is not a metaphor. It's literal. They would literally take a rope and wrap it around your right arm and then tie it to your back. And then you would train. And it would force you to learn how to use your left hand when you're training to fight. So that way, you could be ambidextrous. You would fight with both hands. He would be able to use his left hand. Now, this is an advantage. Because in the ancient world, you don't want left-handed people in your army for several reasons. One, in the ancient world, they're highly superstitious. And they believe that the majority of the people are right-handed and you, the gods put you on their right hand when they want to reward you, then maybe the left hand is not a good thing. Okay, Our, The church I grew up in used to always say, like, we're going to extend the right hand of fellowship to you and shake your hand. And, and I always joke and say, like, and if you're bad, we're going to extend the left hand of rejection. So the reality is that's the way they saw it. The right hand was the, the favored side of God. It was of the gods. That's where you replace. You put your queen on your right side. You put your knights on your right side. You put your prince on your right side, the right side. And the reason is, you want to know why right-handed people are usually favored more than left-handed people? Because the people in the ancient world knew that men were evil and the heart is on the left side. They believe that if you men are naturally evil, if you're dominated by your left side, then you are dominated by evil. And that, which we all are dominated by evil, but they became very superstitious that left-handed people were somehow more cursed or more evil than right-handed people because they were dominated by the left side where the heart was and the heart was evil above all other things. And so there's a superstitious element there, but there's also a practical element. Because when you're going to war and everybody's carrying their sword in the right hand and their shield in the left, you, when you do an about face and create a wall of shields and everybody turns to the right to create a shield, a wall of shields from the left side, you don't want the left-handed guy in there. Because the left-handed guy is going to have a sword in his left hand and now you've got a gap. And if he gets hit with an arrow, he goes down and now the gap widens and everybody else can go down. You're like, well, why doesn't he just turn the other way? Well, then your swords are sticking at each other, and he's got to march backwards, and that's just not right. 
After a while, some kings who were willing to risk the judgment of the gods said, hey, let's actually maybe create a left-handed only regiment. And we can use them in different ways. And that's where we get the 300 left-handed slingers at the end of Judges. But most kings were not willing to go that route. Most kings were not willing to risk the curse of the gods. Look, the gods would curse you for the dumbest things. Why risk it going that route? But maybe we could use being left-handed to our advantage if they really weren't left-handed. So if we could bind the right hand, train them to be left-handed, nobody would expect a left-handed warrior to come in, but we wouldn't reap the judgment of the gods because he's not really left-handed. And so that's what Ehud has done. And so he has trained himself to use his left hand. Now, what advantage does this give him? We're told that under his coat, he fashioned a double-edged sword that was a cubic long. A cubit in the ancient world was 18 inches, about elbow to the tip of the fingertips. Now, that doesn't translate. We know all different arms are different. That's why the cubit is, there's no standard. The cubit was based on the arm of your king. And it wasn't until later, that means if you get a new king, your cubit changes. And it wasn't until later that it became standardized. And when they standardized it, it turned out to be about 18 inches. And 17 and a half to 18 inches is pretty much what the standard is. The cubit is that long, so it's elbow to fingertips. It's a double-edged sword, and he straps it to the right side. Because when you're right-handed, you strap your sword to the left side because it's kind of hard to grab your sword on your right side with your right hand and, like, like get it up out of the sheath and, like, go strike somebody. You want to pull it quick. You do the opposite side. This is going to allow him to carry a sword into the Moabite palace without being checked for a sword because they're only going to pat him down on his left side. Because what idiot would send a left handed curse by the gods guy in here to try to attack us. And so you had to realize that this idea of binding people in the right hand and training them to become left handed is a pretty new thing in military strategy. It's kind of like when um, Napoleon started flanking people, it's like that was revolutionary. But you were like, it took you thousands of years to realize that maybe we shouldn't dress in red and just kind of f run into each other shooting guns. And Napoleon like flanked people and people were like, oh my gosh, it's genius. But they also accused him of cheating. <laughs> you can't do that. We're supposed to stand in front of each other and shoot each other to death, you ding-dongs. Yes, you may say, wow, it took them that long to figure that out. But there's just, humans are dumb. There, there's rules that you have in war. God forbid that you violate them. He makes a sword. He straps it to the side. He strapped it under his coat, his right thigh, and he brought the tribute payment to King Eglon of Moab. Now, we're told that he brings the tribute. The tribute is basically a tax. Moab has basically, they're strong enough to conquer, to kill, to scare the Israelites, but they're either not strong enough to completely occupy and control them. You have to realize in the ancient world, if you, over, if you conquered a nation, you also had to control it and the nation that you came from. And with technology very limited, people traveling very little far, no communication. I mean, over 10 miles, you've lost your communication. And no communication and very few people in the world compared to today, 
the more land that you conquered, the harder it was to control it. This is why the concept of an empire doesn't actually come around until 722 or 700s. 734 specifically when Tiglath Pilazar III comes on the scene and figures out how to control more land with very few people. So Moab may not be strong enough to literally occupy and control them completely. So what do you do is you tax them. And you tax them so hard that they'll never be able to amass enough supplies or armies to overthrow you. But at the same time, because you're strong enough to come over and to kill them and attack them every once in a while, they're too scared to not pay the tax. For 18 years, they have been sending a representative over to Eglon to pay a tax. This tax could be a quarterly thing, a biannually thing, we don't know, but the reality is there's a tax. Ehud has been assigned to this, which means Ehud has done this multiple times. And this is important to understand because Ehud, how in the world does he know that they won't pat him down? Because he's been there before. This is the, the bank robbery heist movie where the first 30 minutes is they're casing out the joint. They're looking for security cameras. They're testing like security guard response time. How long does it take the cops to get there? The implication is that Ehud knows exactly what to do. He knows where to put the sword. He seems to know where, what, what will get the king's attention to give him a private viewing. He knows how to escape. The, the, the fact is, is he's using his wit. He's using his wit. He's using his intelligence. And he's probably been scoping it out. Now, I know that's somewhat of an assumption, but the fact that he seems to know exactly what to do at every step of the way suggests that he's been there before. Suggests that he's been there before. Ehud has been checking things out, and on this day, he's decided... It's time to act. Now, we're told the Eglon is a very fat man. This is meant to be a jab. Now, I know in our culture today that can be viewed as very insensitive and harsh, and it is. And I would agree. But obviously, the author of this Bible is God. So God doesn't mean this as a mocking jab at people like what we use today. But there's a double mocking here. And the first is Eglon's name means calf-like, as in cow, calf-like. Now, you have to understand something. Some of the names in the Bible probably were not their mother and father God-given names. Doubt you name your kid cow when he's born. And even Jacob, you don't look at your kid and you're like, oh, we have twins. Let's call him Deceiver, okay? That's not their names. What's the likelihood that when you get to the book of Ruth, that her name is Pleasant and Friend and, and all these names. And or, Orpa is turn the neck and walk away and she just happens to turn the neck away. And Kilion and Melion are sickly and weak and they just happen to die. These names are probably not their names. Now, before you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, and that means we can't trust the Bible. God is just making the names up. No, because nicknames were often very common in the ancient world. And the ancient world was not uncommon to have 10, 20 names by the end of your life. People were named for their character. Think of it like your nickname. All of you have three names, at least, probably. You have your first name, your middle name, your last name. Your last name probably has more to do with what your family used to do or where you came from or some father's name way, way back in the day. And then some of you got nicknames when you were growing up. And nicknames were based on what your little brother and sister said because they couldn't pronounce your name right or maybe something funny that you did or something that you were known for loving. And if you go into the American Indians... They were actually given multiple names. If you ever read James Fenimore Cooper's series of books, one of them is the most famous, is Last of the Mohicans, 
which is very good stories, but very bad with details in his books. Very scenes when you've got eight Indians hiding behind a sapling tree. This guy by the name of Hawkeye, who shows up in the movie Last of the Mohicans, which is a phenomenal movie, one of my favorites. And the soundtrack is phenomenal. And it's Danley, Daniel Day-Lewis. You can't go wrong with that. His name is Hawkeye. And as you read this series of James Fenimore Cooper, Hawkeye gets different names at different times in his life for different things that he accomplishes in different feats. If God is the creator of us and he's the best judge of character, then he has every right to give these people a nickname based on their character. And so I wouldn't see this as God changing the names to protect the innocent or changing their names because he's deceiving you, but more like maybe this is the nickname that Ruth was given because she was so friendly and such a companion that her parents named her Ruth in addition to that name later in her life. Or God is giving them this name because this is the way he wants you to see them, which is more accurate to who they are than whatever their parents gave them. His name is Catholic, and God wants you to see that. How does this work? Today, being overweight could be a result of having lack of self-control. It could be that there's just something not right in your body and it's not functioning the right way. You have trouble metabolizing things or certain pills and medicines make you overweight. Or there's all kinds of reasons why you would be overweight today. And you would say, well, doesn't that exist in the ancient world too? Yes, except not. Because in the ancient world, people worked from sun up to sundown. And they worked hard. And we are all lazy compared to the people in the ancient world. They didn't really sit around that much. They worked hard. They walked everywhere. There was no such thing as bicycles, let alone cars. Even though a lot of those physical or emotional or biological or chemical things might still exist back then, they're being kind of taken over by the fact that they're just always walking, working really hard all the time. If you were overweight in the ancient world, that was a sign of you doing absolutely nothing. Now, in our culture, doing nothing and sitting around all day is not a sign of being a bad person because that could just mean that you work in an office, yet you're still doing tons of stuff all the time, and you're a very hard worker. You're just a very hard worker in a different way. There's lots of ways that you can be very hard worker, very good work ethic without being physically active. But back then, there was no such thing as not being physically active because everything pre-industrial revolution required you to be physically active to survive. For someone to be overweight means that they're absolutely lazy, which means they're incredibly wealthy and have the ability to be lazy, which means that they're corrupt because they're getting their wealth off of the backs of other people. This is where we get the idea of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so like Herod the Great, when he's told to be in excess of 400 pounds when he died, which means he was probably 550 pounds somewhere around there. The idea is it's meant to be a slam against his character. So you need to understand something. You can't interpret it as an American. Because even though there's lots of reasons why you might be overweight, and a lot of them might have nothing to do with low, lack of self-discipline or being lazy, we are active in different ways today. Back then, if you're overweight, you're oppressing somebody. You're oppressing somebody. And we're not talking about just being overweight in a big bones sense or having a few extra pounds on you 
we're talking about being extremely overweight to the point where like it's so obvious that something's not right here and we're going to be shown that later when he gets killed how overweight he is so please don't see this as an offensive comment or a mocking jab that is not the god that we serve that is not the god that dies on the cross for us it's just the reality of living in a completely different culture and that means something completely different we're told that he was a very fat man and that very fat means that he's very oppressive and that's the way you're supposed to read it but to say that somebody is very oppressive is not as visually powerful as to say that they're very fat now this is more of a satire in the ancient world it's a satire so think of saturday night live or monty python's flying circus it's meant to be a political jab and so they are tongue-in-cheek going to jab and mock eglon for the purpose of showing you god at work